It's time for Dodger baseball. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! There it goes! See ya! The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Welcome back to the Off the Air Podcast. I'm Chris Bonchu with Jimmy Sullivan. We have a very special guest, Malcolm Moran, graduate of WFUV and Fordham of 1975. And he comes to the show with a lot of wisdom in the industry, a New York Times columnist, among many others. Now he teaches journalism in Indiana. And uh, Malcolm, just a wealth of knowledge and a philosophy about how you broadcast sports, how you integrate journalism to it, Jimmy, and uh, just a real pleasure and a real treat to have the true godfather of WFUV Sports on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And you talk about his experience in journalism and a lot of his philosophies helped guide the founding of one-on-one. And a lot of those are things that we still use today. And I think it's fair to say this in this context. We wouldn't be here with this platform, with the standing that WFUV has, if it was not for Malcolm Moran helping create one-on-one when he was a student at Fordham. So just a, an honor and a privilege to have him on the show. As you said, Chris, a ton of knowledge, a ton of wisdom, and really looking forward to getting into some of his experiences and just getting to pick his brain. He's a really fascinating guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about his experience, a guy who has been to the Olympics, to Super Bowls, you name it, he's been there in the industry of sports, but he's also a writer and he also um, comes from a place uh, that's different from a lot of our uh, FUV alumni. So he's really the guy and uh, a prominent guest for our podcast so far. And Jimmy and I will have a conversation with him coming up first. Let's hear from Nick DeLuca, who will give you a little bit more on our guest on the Off the Air podcast, Malcolm Moran. This week on Off the Air... Malcolm Moran. A 1975 Fordham graduate, Malcolm served as sports manager and is the creator of WFUV's One-on-One, New York's longest-running sports call-in show. Moran launched his daily newspaper career as a sports reporter at Newsday in 1977 where he covered high school, college, and professional sports, and went on to work at the New York Times from 1979 to 1998 as a reporter and columnist before joining the Chicago Tribune. In 2000, Malcolm transitioned to USA Today, covering college basketball and football. Moran is a recipient of the Jim Murray Outstanding Sports Writer Award and is a 2005 inductee into the U.S. Basketball Writers Association Hall of Fame. More recently, Moran was the inaugural night chair in sports journalism and society at Penn State 
and joined the Indiana University faculty in 2013 as the director of sports capital journalism. Here's the Off the Air podcast with Malcolm Moran. Malcolm, first of all, thank you so much uh, for being with us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate you reaching that far back into the alumni records uh, to, to discover my whereabouts. <laughs> and of course, you graduated from Fordham and WFUV in 1975. You built up a career as a sports writer, the New York Times, USA Today, Newsday, Chicago Tribune. Now you're the director of sports capital journalism at Indiana University, Purdue in Indianapolis. Um, first question for you is just, how is the new semester going? Obviously, we've been through a lot um, in the last uh, many months. How, how is the new semester going in, in a virtual format? And, and how is how's everything on your end? It's going very well. Uh, and from an academic standpoint, I think the students have done a wonderful job adjusting to the digital reality that will serve to keep everybody safe. Uh, on the IUPUI campus, uh, the the number of positive tests has been microscopic, which is an enormous tribute to the students taking all of this as seriously as they should. Um, and from the Sports Capital Journalism Program standpoint, I mean, there's been a an interruption in our travel. But the good news for us is that in the near future, the events are going to be coming to us. The final four, the men's final four, is in Indianapolis next April. And from the discussions that have taken place, uh, it seems clear that there's more and more confidence on the NCAA's part that the tournament will take place as scheduled. I mean, the question remains how many, if any, fans will be in attendance, uh, but there will be media coverage, and that should be able to open some doors for our students, which we're very appreciative of. And then the following January, January of 22, the, the college football playoff national championship is going to be at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, which I've been looking forward to since the nanosecond uh, that it was announced because our students have covered football championship games going back to the, the BCS era. Um, so in terms of the academic piece and the, the program's opportunities, uh, things have really been going very well. Malcolm, just one more on that front. You were talking about going out and covering events, and I see um, your program all the time on Twitter publicizing the things you're covering, whether it be college football, college basketball, other sports as well. How much do, do you and, and the students miss being at the events? Because I think one thing that both Chris and I can attest to in covering games and covering local sports teams is that there's really nothing quite like being there. And I think we've really gotten that appreciation now that it's been over six months that we really haven't been able to cover things. So how, how much do you miss that uh, personal experience? I do miss it all. Given the, the timing of the events that we have traditionally covered in the nearly eight years that I've been here, 
most of them fall during the spring semester. I mean, there isn't that much going on in the fall that, that we cover as a program. Now, I mean, I've had a class cover WNBA games virtually. We've covered the Colts virtually. Uh, I suspect we'll cover the national championship game virtually. Um, but it, it really hasn't hit us yet for, for this year. Now, it was difficult for us in March because when everything came to a screeching halt, we had just covered uh, the NFL scouting combine in person, the Horizon League men's tournament, the Horizon League women's tournament. We were in the process of starting to cover the, well, we had covered the Big Ten women's tournament, and then the Big Ten men's tournament got through the one night before everything was shut down. And so the, in the remainder of March, we were scheduled to cover the remain, remainder of the Big Ten men's tournament. There was going to be a regional of the NCAA men in Indianapolis. And that same week, the NCAA men's swimming and diving championships were going to be at the natatorium on our campus. And then the final four. So there was, there was all this just about to happen that obviously had to be canceled for understandable reasons. And so that was a big disappointment for the students that were getting ready to do that. And, you know, really all, all you can do is, is be prepared for whatever opportunity is going to present itself, whether it's virtual or in person, and, and just hope that everybody can stay healthy and get through this and then adjust to whatever the new normal is whenever it happens. And we've seen so much change here at WFUV. Of course, we're not in the radio station right now. We're recording um, remotely. And uh, I, I want to jump back to WFUV and, and go back to its, its earliest moments, the founding of one-on-one, -on -one, which was, which was your brainchild and, you, it was initially thought up 10 minutes high school sports, 10 minutes college sports, 10 minutes pro sports, if I'm not mistaken. And then, of course, it's evolved to become what it is today. And we're still going through some evolutions. Uh, but if you could take us back to that time and, and the earliest days of one-on-one -on -one when you were the sports director at WFUV, um, your thoughts behind it, your vision for it, and, and what it's become. Well, first of all, I'm a little relieved because when you said you wanted to take me back to the earliest days, I, I thought you were going to ask me what it was like to be classmates with Vin Scully in the late 40s. <laughs> and, I, and I was beginning to get a little nervous. Uh, but one, one element that has been overlooked, and, and I've done my best to talk about it in the past, particularly when... Uh, Bob Ahrens was responsible for setting up that wonderful 40th anniversary dinner. Hard to believe it was six years ago. But the, the one key part of the evolution that really can't get enough credit is that in the 1972-73 academic year, Tom Sabella was the sports director. And the imprint that he put on the sports department that year, which really lasts to this day, is that he created a point of emphasis that this is a journalism operation. I mean, yes, we're 
we're broadcasting sporting events, but we're doing it from a perspective of being journalists. And what that accomplished for the department is that just, and I, I had the perspective of just being a staff member in those days, but that allowed the department to heighten its credibility within the entire station operation so that we weren't just merely doing games anymore. Obviously, that's an important part, but it allowed us to begin the discussion about expanding into different possibilities that would create opportunities for a wider range of students in the sports department. And so in the following year after Tom departed, when I became sports director, that's when we started talking about a program on Sunday nights that was part pro sports, part college sports, part high school sports. And that really opened the door for getting credentials for pro sporting events. I mean, that was the, the genesis of that initiative. And, and what that demonstrated was that we could be accountable for delivering a quality product that we all took seriously uh, over a period of however many weeks it was. And then the, the success of that program, which was completely different from a call-in show, but it, it demonstrated our responsibility and our accountability. And then that led to the discussion of, of having a, a weekly call-in show. Malcolm, talking about one-on-one -on -one itself, the success of the show, you went ahead and created it. Obviously, as Chris said, there have been a lot of evolutions. What it started out as being is different from what it is now. But was there a particular moment, a particular point in time where you came to the realization that one-on-one -on -one was going to be something special, that you had helped create something that was really important and that could really succeed in New York? I don't think that hit me when, when I was still there uh, because we were just concentrating on getting to the next week and, and then the week after that and then the week after that. I mean, what kind of guests can we get? What topic should we be talking about? I mean, how, how can we do this better? Uh, because there, there weren't that many templates that had been in place. I mean, the reason that we can say that it's the longest running is because for whatever reason in that market, there was a lull in the mid 70s and we were the only talk show. There had been a bunch of them that came earlier and, and were done very well. I mean, WNBC really created the genre. And, and Bill Mazur, who a lot of New Yorkers remember fondly, he, he basically invented the genre in, in New York City in the mid-60s. And, and one of the things that he established that became part of what we were trying to accomplish with one-on-one -on -one is that it really was a two-way conversation. Uh, for whatever reason, things developed over time where I'm sure you've heard this plenty of times and it drives me crazy 
when you'll hear a caller ask a question and say, well, I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Well, that's not what this is about. I mean, this is about a respectful give and take. And in New York, that started with Bill Mazur. In the late 60s and early 70s, you had people like Guy Manella at WBZ in Boston, a 50,000 watt operation, which a high school kid could get in Queens. And I mean, not that I was rooting for the Red Sox or the, or the Bruins or the Celtics or the, and the Patriots didn't count in those days. I mean, they were a non-entity, but it was the same respectful give and take. And then in the early 70s, Marty Glickman actually for a brief period of time had a call-in show on WNEW AM 11:30, and and he really took that relationship to a new level, and and the irony is that much later, with with Bob Aaron's being the the conduit, Marty became an enormous influence on any number of staffers that passed through and worked at FUV. Well, he, he was impacting the product before he even knew it because his willingness, even if he wasn't necessarily in agreement with a caller on issue X, he established a culture in that show of a respectful give and take. And that's what we borrowed. If you'd like to use the word steal, I would plead, plead guilty, but that's the philosophy that we borrowed from Marty's show on WNEWAM. And that's one of the things I mentioned at that dinner in 2014 is that the thing that I may be most proud of, and I can say this because I, I can't take any credit for anything that happened after my graduation, but with all the changes and with, with all of the different people who had the chance to sit in that chair over the years, that respectful, professional feeling has endured all this time. And, and I think that's a tribute to every single host that, that's ever been involved with this over the years. And, and it's something particularly now when it, it just seems like a media philosophy is that you need to be as shrill as possible to be heard over the din and to have people in the early stage of their development embrace what could easily be dismissed as an old school approach, which I, I don't use the word old school, I prefer to call it timeless. Like, Unfortunately, in too many areas of our country, I'm not trying to get political here, but the absence of an honest give and take has really been felt acutely in a lot of different ways. And one-on-one and -on -one in our little corner of the world has preserved the idea of civility. And, and I'm very, very proud of that. And, and we all appreciate that because that we're indebted to those who, who brought it in and who, who nourished it. And, and we hope that we continue to nourish it today. Um, that professionalism on the air and, and that this isn't necessarily about being shrill. You, you mentioned journalism as a, an element of the program that's important, that's emphasized, and that, there, that, that journalism is a part of the work that we do. 
How important is that as, as someone who, who teaches journalism? What, what's the distinction between simply um, getting on the radio and, and, and talking versus having the, the, inter the interrogating and the questioning involved in, in good journalism that you can integrate into sports talk or sports calling? How important is that? It's essential. And I'll tell you, to be frank, I don't listen to very much sports talk radio anymore, uh, precisely for that reason. Uh, I mean, I, I won't, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody specifically, uh, but I, I can recall sitting at a stoplight, this is years ago, and it was during a period of time when not much was going on. And to me, that's when you really test the creativity and the initiative of somebody hosting a, a sports talk show, when there aren't obvious things to talk about, when you don't have a big event going on or right in front of you. And, and so I'm listening to, one, to, to this program and I'm at a red light and the segment is being devoted to the host is soliciting stories from callers to describe when they went to a game or an event and they got so drunk that they passed out. And, and, it, and there's story after story of like, I went to this game, I went to that game, and my buddies told me like I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And people are laughing about it. And maybe I realized, I mean, I was outraged. And, and I realized after the fact that maybe part of that reason is having worked on two different campuses and understanding how alcohol use and overuse has become an enormous issue on college campuses in this country, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years that I've been on the academic side. And to be so cavalier about it and, and to make it into this joke just to get through a segment, I just said, I've got better things to listen to. And I hit the button for E Street Radio. And for that show in particular, I've never looked back. And so to answer the question specifically, I think no matter what, form of communication you're involved with, whether you're speaking in a broadcast capacity or whether you're working on a 3,000 word story that you've taken a month to polish, you have the same responsibility to be as accurate and as fair. And those are two different things. You can be accurate without being fair. You can quote somebody accurately, but you can portray the tone of it in a way that's unfair to the person being quoted. And so to me, it's, it's essential. And, and, I, and I realized I didn't completely answer the earlier question about when it hit me in terms of the, the success of the show. And, and what I can tell you is, this was after I had been working at the New York Times for several years. And by this time, the, the show had been on the air for about a decade. And I'm, in the office one day chatting with an editor and he said, you went to Fordham, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, I was listening to this show last night. I mean, the sports talk, talk show and 
mean, those kids at Fordham are really good. You ever listen to that show? And for whatever reason, I just said, oh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 didn't want, I felt like I'd be showing them up if I said, well, by the way, like, I, I was the first one to host it. So all I said was, no, yeah, I mean, no, you're right. I mean, they, they do a great job. And, you know, and I think that's when it hit me where, you know, here's a professional in the industry, and he was basically a fan of, of what was going on there. So that's probably when I began to realize that this thing not only has legs, but it's, you know, it's really gained a, a lot of a, a foothold in, in the biggest market in the country. That's a great story you tell about uh, your editor telling you that. I wanted to ask you personally, I read an article uh, about you in Fordham News a few months back, and uh, they were talking about, or you were talking about actually, how much you fell in love with college basketball in high school and college. You're still a, a big college basketball fan, and you were specifically talking about the Digger Phelps uh, Fordham team in the early 70s. How much did that team in particular, and Fordham basketball in general, uh, catalyze your love of the sport that obviously you still have to this day? It's, it's impossible to fully describe in in what clearly was a, you know, a prehistoric era in the history of the sport, this was eight years before the formation of the Big East Conference, when Eastern schools were just independents. Uh, if on a given Saturday afternoon, if you had a chance to watch three basketball games on television, that was like a bonanza. I mean, there would be the ECAC game of the week, which occasionally would be from the Rose Hill gym. Maybe there would be a syndicated national game uh, with highly ranked teams. And if we really got lucky, you'd be able to see maybe Columbia's playing at home and might be on Channel 11 in the evening. I mean, that was a full day. And, and so, to try to describe how a team that had been 10 and 15 the year before for a period of three to four weeks in, from early February to the start of the NCAA tournament took over New York City. I mean, Howard Cosell was talking about the Rams all the time. Uh, there were consecutive sellouts in the garden on Thursday nights, February 18 and February 25. On the 18th, they're playing Notre Dame and Austin Carr, which had beaten UCLA earlier that season. This is when UCLA was in the midst of 10 championships in 12 years. I tried to get in and was turned away. The next week, Marquette, with Al McGuire as coach, comes in. I didn't even try to get a ticket to that game because it was such an impossible ticket. And, and, you know, and this is what got my attention. There was so much interest in that game that Marv Albert, the voice, then the radio voice of the Knicks, was delivering play-by-play -play on WNBC. 
So I was going back and forth from WFUV, which I had listened to all season long, to listening Marv, I mean, doing the Rams on, on WNBC. And I mean, it was just, it was, it was a very powerful time. And, and here you have this young first year head coach who, who understood the value of the media and he had in the New York media, I mean, basically in the palm of his hand. And and then they they get into the tournament. I mean, they you know they they win a game. They get to the round of 16. They they lose to Villanova, which wound up getting to the Final Four. Um, and then in early May, I come home from school one day, and in those days, Marv did the afternoon sports reports on WNBC. And one day in early May, he started his report uh, by saying, as expected, Fordham coach Digger Phelps announced today, blah, blah, blah. And, and I sat in, in front of the radio saying, as expected, let me tell you what I expected. I expected that in my four years, I'm gonna get to the final four. And that may not be happening anymore. So, I mean, it was just, and, you know, and that's why it was such a painful divorce. And after, I mean, Digger, you know, became a friend of mine and, and was a huge help to me professionally much later on. And, and seeing what he accomplished at Notre Dame, not just in terms of achievement on the floor, but what his teams represented academically I mean, just taking the high road uh, in every way. Um, and I couldn't blame him for leaving, but uh, I mean, it was just a very passionate time in many, many ways. Over the years, Malcolm, you've been to 37 Final Fours, 11 Super Bowls, 16 World Series, four Olympic Games having credentials to some of the biggest stages in sports across the world um, for so many years now, maybe, maybe I'm dealing in a generality, but what, what's that like? What, what, what have you accrued in just being a part, being eyes and ears next to some of the, the biggest events uh, that define culture that in a lot of ways define American culture? It's a great question. And and the, probably the biggest thing I've learned, and I get some strange looks when I mention this in class, so feel free to look at me like I'm from Mars. But seriously, the thing I've learned is if, if you can cover a high school football game, you can cover a Super Bowl. If you can cover a high school basketball game, you can cover the Final Four or the NBA championships or the gold medal game, men or women in the Olympics. And, and the reason I say that is because at the high school level, depending on the facility, depending on the resources, depending on whether the Wi-Fi works, you may have all these obstacles thrown in front of you and, and your problem solving skills could be stressed. Well, it might not seem like it when you're watching events, big time events like that on TV, but when you go to the Olympics, it's not the seamless 
well, you know, Bob Costas throwing it to track and field and everything is neat and orderly and seamless. Well, that's because there are dozens, if not hundreds of people doing a specific job and you've got brilliant people in charge that create this remarkable quilt. If you're covering the Olympics by yourself, you're worried about things like, is this bus, is the media shuttle gonna get me where I need to go on time? Or it's 10 o'clock at night and I haven't had anything to eat since breakfast because there hasn't been any time. Can I get my hands on a hot dog? Which when you're at the London Olympics, there aren't a lot of hot dogs. There's a lot of fish and chips, but not many hot dogs. So sorry about the long-winded answer, but the problem-solving skills that you develop covering peewee hockey, it could be anything, are transferable to covering something that's on the big stage. And one of the most fun things for me, and, and I, I could just cite London or Rio as examples, is watching really committed and talented students transform themselves. And what I mean is, like when you first get to London and all, you know, the, the city is spectacular and the Olympics are gonna start in three days and, you know, all the flags are flying and like you're thinking, like I'm at the Olympics, like what do I do now? And to get from that wide-eyed, you know, what do I do next kind of feeling to watching them just focus on the next thing and just kind of lock into the routine. And then, oh, by the way, overcome the fatigue factor, which is gigantic. I mean, I remember in both cases telling students, here's what's gonna happen. Our adrenaline is gonna get us about halfway through the first week and we're gonna be flying. And then after that, we're gonna be grinding because you're basically work, you're getting on a media shuttle anywhere from 9 to 10 a.m. and you're coming back on a media shuttle anywhere from 1.30 to 3 a.m. Now, I know you guys, in a pinch, you can handle those hours, but 17 straight days of that is something else. And to see people that are in the early stage of their development, just grind it out and work through that exhaustion and make the extra effort to make sure that they're not misspelling a name or making a grammatical error or just some silly fatigue-driven mistake. To work through all that really has been inspiring. So Malcolm, it's interesting you bring that up about students maybe going to the Olympics or the final four or the Super Bowl, and at first being wide eyed and then realizing, okay, there's a job to be done. I belong here, so on and so forth. You know, we at FUB have had somewhat of a similar experience at times when we're covering big events where sometimes you'll get that initial sense and then it sinks in, you have a job to do, and then you treat it professionally. You guys cover a lot of big events as well at IUPUI, whether it's the Final Four or 
you know, the Big Ten championship game, Big Ten tournament in basketball, stuff like that. How crucial is that for students in college, for example, to get that experience early on in their development to have a big event, get that, you know, kind of wide-eyed sense of things, and then realize that there's a job to do and be able to go out and do it, like you said? Well, first of all, it helps them get jobs because inevitably in, in almost any event of that size, there's going to be some logistical challenge or some obstacle that the student had to overcome. And sometimes it might be with my help, sometimes it might just be on their own, just left to their own resources in a crazy post-game situation. Well, that has value on a bunch of different levels. One of the levels is that when they're interviewing for that really competitive internship or an entry-level job they really want, editors and producers love to ask, describe some kind of challenge that you've had to overcome. Well, if the challenge you're describing happened at the Olympic Games and you're 22 or 23 years old and you overcame it and kept your cool and delivered a story on deadline, that's going to get an editor or a producer's attention. But beyond that part of it, I mean, I can give you an example of Emily Kaplan, who was an outstanding student at Penn State when I was there who now is at ESPN, um, just had her experience in the bubble at Edmonton in the NHL Conference Championships and then the Stanley Cup Finals. And she was one of the students in London. And when, after graduation, when the Super Bowl was in New York, she was there. And so she sent me a picture from Media Day and, and texted it to me and I replied, Hey, good luck with this. File early and often, and I hope it's a great week. I'd love to hear all about it when it's all over. And then later on, when we had a chance to talk, she said, nothing that has happened here has overwhelmed me because of London. And, and that, that, just for one thing, it made me feel even better about the London experience because there was a, a lasting boost of confidence when when you have to go through you know which can you know the type of event that can be overwhelming especially if you haven't done it before and and then move on to another event and feel like you know, i can do this i mean i've i've done something at least as big as this i mean that you can't put a price or a value on the boost in confidence that that creates which ultimately is why I do what I do. I mean, yes, don't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it was great to be in London for all kinds of reasons and to be there, but to be able to provide an opportunity that kind of catapults a graduate into the industry with that level of deserved confidence, uh, I mean, it, it's an important part of what we do here. If I could ask one more of you, Malcolm, um, you spent a lot of time at the New York Times and to us as journalists, sort of the gold standard of at least in print journalism. And we sort of live in a time where even that 
is is questioned right now. Um, what did you glean at a place specifically like the New York Times and and all the places that you've been um, about staying staying hard to the truth and and absorbing a culture of just journalistic integrity that that we all aspire to? It's it's the sense of responsibility. I mean that that drives you as much as anything else, you know, and that's why uh, to to see in some quarters that come under attack. Uh, I mean, frankly, I find it infuriating. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, and I'm speaking as somebody from the academy now who is no longer in the industry day to day. I think one day when we look back on this period, it is going to be viewed as one of journalism's finest hours for the the, the the volume of intense stories, one behind the other, uh, that that have unfolded before our eyes in real time, and the pressure to deliver that information on a minute by minute basis. Uh, I mean, just the the stress and the sense of responsibility must be overwhelming. I mean, I I have a friend who has worked in journalism in Washington on news side for a long time. And, and just from conversations we've had, it, it became clear a while ago that I mean, people there were fried then, just from like the, the day-to-day stress of so many developments unfolding so quickly. And, and that was before you introduce a global crisis on top of it. So I, I really do think we're going to look back on the quality of the work and the stress that it's being produced under and, and just think about a remarkable time. Thank you. Thank you so much and, and for your insight. And, and I, that, I believe the same. And, and um, it's, it's wonderful to see people carrying this work forward at, at a time like this. Malcolm Moran, um, Director of Sports Capital Journalism at IUPUI, the FUV alum from 1975 and the founder of One on One. Uh, We thank you so much for joining us and taking the time with us on the Off the Air podcast. Thanks for having me and and thanks for continuing a tradition way beyond what any of us ever imagined. You just heard from Malcolm Moran, the WFUV alumni of 1975, and just so much great stuff from him there, Jimmy. I don't even really know where to begin unpacking. I, I think he, he makes a case for what sports broadcasting and specifically sports journalism needs to be today. Um, that's so inspiring to, to me, to us, um, for what we do. And, uh, you know, what, what's your takeaway from, from hearing his perspective, somebody who's been around and has done this for so long? Yeah, I mean, a few takeaways, honestly, Chris, and you made a good point about not knowing where to start because I'm kind of in the same spot. But I think his knowledge about journalism and the comment that really stuck with me, because you and I have both been beat reporters uh, for various teams you know, around the area. He said, if you can cover a high school football game, you can cover the Super Bowl mm-hmm. or the Olympics or whatever it may be. And 
it seems like hyperbole, but really it's true. And he told the story about Emily Kaplan, who uh, is now on ESPN and was in the NHL hub cities. So yeah, I think that was probably the main takeaway. And, and that's something that he's imparting to his students as well at IUPUI now. So he has so much wisdom and he's such a smart guy. And as we said off the top, Chris, we owe so much to him in one-on-one, in FUV in general. And he's just such a, a great guy to talk to because you could pick his brain and you could do it for a while. And he just has so many stories and so much interesting insight. And he talks about a, what he calls something that maybe some would call old school journalism, where it's, it's hard and fast to the facts and that they're, you know, it, it doesn't dive into this bluster that you might see in the, in the media market now, um, the, the media environment now, which is a very open thing and an open landscape. And, and he believes in something that he doesn't call old school. He calls it timeless. And I think that's, just amazing. Um, and he talks about some of the fatigue that's involved with going to another country and another time zone for the Olympics and how after the first two, three, four, five days, you're running on adrenaline. But then the latter half of that, you have got to just buck up and do your job as a journalist. And that I, I, I think um, inspires me to just to just launch into this, this world. Uh, I'll leave you the last word, Jimmy, on Malcolm Moran and just where he comes from and, and it's just a wealth of knowledge like we've said and, and think about the experiences he's, he's had too right he's covered a million final fours a lot of olympics a bunch of super bowls and there aren't many people who are able to say that and it's really amazing when you look at it in his career as well you know writing for the new york times and, and usa today and now head of the journalism school at IUPUI all the things he's been able to do, but I think most impressively, at least to me, is how much he's given back to students, to people like us, whether it's at Fordham or otherwise, just seems like such a great guy. Um, and I'm sure a great mentor to a lot of those students as well. So awesome getting to talk to Malcolm. Uh, that is going to go down as, I don't know about you, but it's going to go down for me at least as a highlight of my four years at Fordham. That was really, really cool. I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, ditto to that completely. Um, and Malcolm, the founder of One on One, and we were able to air this on our first One on One back uh, into the fold on 90.7 in the original time slot that Malcolm uh, brought it into the world with. So there's just some poetry there that's really wonderful and so we were able to talk with Malcolm Moran graduate of WFUV 1975 but let it be known that his legacy still lives one-on-one -on -one, absolutely uh, continuing uh, in his uh, with his grace and uh, we thank him for that we're proud to have talked to him and we hope that we're making him proud with the program for Jimmy Sullivan I'm Chris Bocci you just heard from Malcolm Moran thanks for joining us on this edition of off the air podcast